Let's pick up the reading at the end of chapter 14, starting in verse 31. But so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Not to be too redundant, but what are those commands at the end of Matthew? Go in all the world, make disciples of every nation. At the end of Mark, go preach the gospel to every creature. At the end of Luke, repentance, forgiveness of sins will be preached in my name to all the nations. End of John, as the Father sent me, so send I you. In the beginning of Acts, you will be my witnesses. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. So the world may know that I love the Father. I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Get up, let us go from here. Remember, this is Monday, Thursday, when Jesus is talking about this. He's just a day away from the cross. So what's central to God's heart is going to come forth out of his mouth. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me We could just have the rapper. I'm fine. <laughs> we good? All right. Every branch, verse 2, in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. At the end of the passage, at the discourse, look at chapter 18, verse 1, when Jesus has finished all these things. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron where there was a garden. All right, so it's the last Thursday of Jesus' life. He's obviously downloading what he feels most important. He goes into this discourse. So historians are kind of divided. Is Jesus... Because of the last verse of uh, chapter 14, get up, let's go from here. And that first verse in chapter 18, when he finished these things, they moved. It seems that Jesus is talking as they're moving. Or at least that's one of the possible implications of that last verse in chapter 14. It's interesting, even in your journey as a church, Jesus talks to you as you're moving. Sometimes you don't get all the instructions sitting in this room or right at the beginning of the journey, which is kind of our propensity, right? Especially if you're organized or efficient or administrators or planners. I just want to tell you, Jesus isn't going to give you the whole route today or in these weeks, right? You're going to have to start moving and Jesus will continue to instruct you while you're on the way. So the metaphor that he uses in chapter 15 about the vine, there's some conjecture on that. Maybe he is walking, 
past the temple on the way to the garden. There was the national symbol of Israel was a vine. It goes back to the conquest of Canaan when they brought out the fruit laden. And so there was this big golden engraving on the Temple Mount, which was the national symbol of Israel, which was this big vine with the clusters on it. Maybe Jesus going by the temple sees a national iconic monument and he thinks of this imagery, this metaphor of the vine. Maybe he's just walking down the street and he sees a vine coming over the wall. The Maccabean coins had the vine on it. Again, the national symbol. Maybe Jesus fingering a coin or something. But for whatever image, we don't know. The metaphor of being a vine, which has Old Testament symbolism, this vine that was pulled out of Egypt and then planted in Palestine. For whatever reason, the metaphor of vine is on the mind and heart of Jesus. And he says, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. I love that word, my father is the vine dresser. Does anybody know what it is in Greek? The word father is Girgis, which is where we get our name, George. The word George is farmer. So let me read it in that light. I am the true vine. Jesus saying, life's not found from the temple religiosity. Life's not found from domestic bliss. Life's not found from monetary convenience or satisfaction. It's not any of that other stuff. The vine's not this or that or whatever. There's other references of the metaphor. I am the true vine, and my father is George. Isn't that interesting? (laughs) Fundamental to any journey or even to any aspect of interacting with Jesus, we have found... We've seen a lot of missionaries get off the plane. We've seen a lot of missionaries come and go. They come bright and shiny. They come full of ideas. And it's always a bit of a puzzle to us which ones will last. Maybe you've noticed this in ministry or in life, or maybe even just the work environment, because there's an X factor in people that isn't quickly identifiable. And you try and say, hmm, this one looks really sharp. And then two years from now, they're, they're not a part of us or even a part of the work, or you, somebody else gets off the plane and your first impression is not very favorable, you think, I don't think these guys will ever make it. And goodness, 35 years down the road, they're plodding away and done amazing things for the Lord. And so, you know, you kind of have this bemused uh, approach to people thinking, wonder what it is that makes people last. I don't know the answer to that other than this. What we have noticed is that men and women who have theologically settled that God is sovereignly good in all that he does and all that he allows, they're indestructible. It doesn't matter how frail or how strong they appear to me or to you. If they have settled, God is sovereignly good. And those two things are important. All that he does or all that he allows, because bad stuff happens, they're unshakable, right? And what I mean by theologically as opposed to emotionally is outside of their own experience. If your determination of the character of God whether he's good or not, is if good things happen to you, then you're going to get messed up. Because bad things happen to everybody at various levels. It could be that tragic things when you're a child or it could just be ministry disappointments down the road. But at some level, difficult, painful things are going to happen to you. But those who have settled it within their theology that God is sovereignly good, they're indestructible. Those who have only settled it experientially or emotionally then when bad things happen, it throws them for a loop. Make sense? So within that, I am the true vine. I am true life. Life's not out there. Life's intrinsic to a person, not to a status. And my father, George, is the vine dresser. 
What Jesus is saying is that he is with you and the Father is with you down in the muck of ministry and the muck of life and the muck of parenting and the muck of existence and all the bad days. The wonderful thing about the God of the Bible is not only is he transcendent and glorious and divine and awe-inspiring and we should have tremble joy in his presence, but he's also near. He's the God who's come near and he's down in the muck and the soil and the dirt and God has dirt under his fingernails. He does not send the devil to do his dirty work. When bad things happen to you, it is not that God has lost sovereignty in that event or in those moments, but whether it's a discipline or whether it's some tragic thing that God has allowed for his greater glory or his people's greater good, he is not gone in that moment. There's dirt under his fingernails because he's down on his knees in the garden of your life, digging in your soil with his own hands. And those hands sometimes bruise you. And sometimes they prune you, as we'll see in a moment. But the father is George. But George is the vine dresser, near, intimate, involved. Whatever you are going through, whatever you've been through, whatever difficult or painful thing you will go through, it is from the hands of God. Whether he has ordained it or whether he has allowed it, like Job, right? All that tragedy, including death and loss and sickness, went through the hands of God. The devil had to get permission for all that stuff. I love that aspect, that Jesus is true life and the Father, George, is the one doing the work. All right, so verse 2 then, as you know, the familiar passage. Let's just look at the three branches and revisit them. Just before that, reminder of the definitional work. When Jesus says fruit in this passage, the Greek word is karpos. It means that which is harvested. It is not referring to other uses of fruit in the New Testament, like the fruit of the Spirit. This is not necessarily a character aspect that's going to be harvested. It's, it's actually talking about disciples. When it's the branches, that word is, as we know, every branch in me, we'll see that in a moment, the branches are referring to disciples. And so when Jesus is talking about bearing fruit, he's talking about making disciples. And the branches are referring to us, the people that are in the vine. All right, so let's look at them. There's two in verse two and then one in verse six. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, karpos, every disciple, in other words, paraphrase, in Jesus, that does not make disciples, he takes away. That word take away is ero in Greek, which is where we get aeroplane or aerogram. So literally it means he lifts up. All right, so let's just revise that. Every disciple, every follower of Jesus, that's not making disciples, he lifts up. And you remember the viticulture illustration for you who've done that reading, vines grow along a trellis, and so sometimes a branch will fall off of that string or that wire and go down into the trench of irrigation and mud will cover the leaves and so light doesn't hit those leaves so photosynthesis doesn't happen. And here comes George, here comes the father who's down in the details of our life and when he sees something in us that is not leading to producing disciples or in our institution or in our church, when he sees something about how we've organized Christian living in this context or culture, wherever we may be, that is not producing disciples, he's concerned about that, right? And it's as if that branch has gone down into that irrigation ditch and photosynthesis isn't happening, reproduction is not happening. 
So what does the vine dresser, what does George the farmer do in that situation? When he's walking down these rows, these trellises of the vineyard, and he sees branches down there in the mud, he takes away, what does that mean? Well, it means he lifts up. So he gets down on his hands and knees, and he does what needs to be done to lift up that branch, tying it again to the trellis so it can receive light, so photosynthesis can happen, right? That's the word take away. It actually means lift up. And in the broader context of this passage, we understand that to be linked to abiding. He lifts up into his presence. He lifts up into his perspective. He lifts up into his requirements and in his, his commands. I want to read to you something from Azusa Street. You all familiar with that, Azusa Street? If I say that, do I need to explain it? What's going on? All right. Okay, so essentially, when we talk about movements, there is, through history, a life cycle of a movement. And we, as an Assemblies of God church, our history is actually rooted in the Methodist church. What happened was, John Wesley was a missionary. Maybe you know the story. He came to America to reach Native American Indians. And when he got here, he realized he wasn't even saved and he didn't have anything to offer American Indians. It took the mission field for this British man to realize something was very lacking in his own life. So he went back to England, and it was at a Bible study where he heard the book of Romans exposited, and his heart was strangely warmed, and he, he had this awakening. Now, that was part of what was at the time called the Anglican Church. But seeing that the Anglican church had fallen off the, the vine and was down in the mud and it wasn't making disciples, he began to organize meetings and societies and small groups inside of the Anglican church that would not meet on Sunday morning, that would bring a revitalization of life. And it led into a whole system of reproduction and disciples making disciples, and it grew into a movement and then what happened was, <clears throat> after the, um, or just before the Revolutionary War, back here in the United States, some of the Wesleyans came over this side of the pond, and a man named Francis Asbury, have you heard that name? From Asbury College. He took the principles of multiplication that Wesley had, and began to have these circuit-riding preachers and disciple-makers, and within a few short years after the Revolutionary War, 34% of all the believers in America were Methodists. It became the largest church in America that was on fire. And it came out of this Anglican revival movement. And then, over years, because momentum's rise and fall, it began to go into decline. It lost its way. But a remnant of those Methodists, with some Episcopalian, uh, Presbyterian, and other forms, coming out of the late 1800s, so we got through the Civil War, we got into the period of enlightenment that disenfranchised everyone, and there was this kind of fervor for a while that we would clean up the earth and bring Jesus back, and then that led into disillusionment. And as we turned the corner into the, the next century, the 20th century, this kind of cycle of revival and renewal and falling away, the discouragement that we weren't actually going to change the world, that politics didn't really work, brought a hunger into this remnant here in the United States and polycentric around the world 
that the really only hope for us all is when Jesus comes. And we're not going to fix the world, and we're not going to solve things. And so we really need Jesus to come back. And they went to the scriptures, and they looked at verses like Matthew 24, 14, and they realized, well, Jesus isn't going to come back until we preach the gospel in all the world as a witness. And man, that's really tough. We're not going to be able to do that unless we have power. We need the power of the Holy Spirit in order to preach the world in all the gospel in all the world in order for Jesus to come back. You see the reverse engineering here. So they began to seek the power of the Holy Spirit. Why? So they could make disciples. That would make disciples. Why? So that the gospel commission could be fulfilled. Why? So Jesus could come back. Why? So we can go home. Make sense? See what's happened just kind of historically. So what happened then through these different centers, there was some stuff in Sweden, in India, in Canada. But in America in Los Angeles, on a little mission, there was an African-American man named William Seymour who began to hold meetings that was seeking Jesus for the power of the Holy Spirit so disciples could be made, so the gospel could go to the end of the world, so Jesus could come, so we could all go home. And out of those meetings, it was on a little mission on a street called Azusa, some amazing things began to happen. I want to read you an excerpt. Brother Seymour generally sat behind two empty boxes, one on top of the other. He usually kept his head inside the top one during the meeting in prayer. There was no pride there. The services ran almost continuously. Seeking souls could be found under the power almost any hour of the day or night. The place was never closed or empty. The people came to meet God. He was always there. Hence a continuous meeting. The meeting did not depend on the human leader. God's presence became more and more wonderful. In that old building with its low rafters and bare floors, God broke strong men and women to pieces and put them together again for his glory. Let me read that sentence again. God broke strong men and women to pieces and put them together again for his glory. It was a tremendous overhauling process. Pride and self-assertion, self-importance and self-esteem could not survive there. The religious ego preached its own funeral sermon quickly. Someone might be speaking. Suddenly the spirit would fall upon the congregation. God himself would give the altar call. Men would fall all over the house like the slain in battle or rush for the altar en masse to seek God. The scene often resembled a forest of fallen trees. Such a scene cannot be imitated. I never saw an altar call given in those early days. God himself would call them, and the preacher knew when to quit. When God spoke, we all obeyed. It seemed a fearful thing to hinder or grieve the Spirit. The whole place was steeped in prayer. God was in his holy temple. It was for man to keep silent. That's where we were born as this tribe, where there was such a strong presence of the Lord, the preacher didn't necessarily have to preach. 
and no one actually had to lead the meeting. But the power of the Spirit was so strong, there is no place for pride or presumption or egos or charisma. It was just the Lord's presence. When I think about Ero, when I think about the way that we have drifted, even as in their day, the movement had passed and decayed and changes need to be made, the first step was God lifted them into his presence. Before they got to plans and strategies and corrections, it was the presence of Jesus lifted back into the simplicity of who God is and the simplicity of his passions for the world and the simplicity of how we need to live and orchestrate our lives in order to be compliant with what God has purposed for all the earth. It's really where we start, isn't it? You guys are looking at momentous things that will have incredible consequences. Uncharted waters, not knowing where that will take you or what it will cost you necessarily. Well, the way to survive it is to constantly be lifted into the presence of Jesus and to let him lead and direct. And that it won't be Zach Maddox coercing anyone in this room or beyond, not that he's trying to, but it'll be the Holy Spirit and you'll all be under such a compulsion because there will come such a unity from being in the presence of the Lord that there will come great desire and passion to follow that road. Jesus, help us. God's presence became more and more wonderful. God broke strong men and women to pieces and put them together again for his glory. I think that's part of the process we're all on in this day and in this age. We look at a church, honestly, that's in decay. I've been traveling for a year now, and I can verify the church in America is in huge trouble. Huge trouble. We are in decline at so many levels, internally and even externally. By externally, I mean the pressures and the forces and the climate that we live in today in this society. We're down in the ditch, if I would be honest. And we need the Father, that great heavenly George, to lift us up into his presence, tie us again into that life. And anything else that we contemplate will not be efficacious or lasting if we ever get away from just being in the presence of Jesus. God in his holy temple, it was for man to keep silent. So I guess I need to ask the first question on that branch, and I always ask it of myself as well. Have I slipped away from the simple presence of Jesus myself? It's especially dangerous for me and for you who are leading the charge and inviting other people to do that and mentoring others and discipling others. Have you noticed that the very thing that you talk about the most is often what the devil pushes back against? So if we talk about abiding, abiding in Jesus or making disciples, those things come under assault in our own lives and our own practice because the devil loves to make us hypocrites. So how are we doing just being in the presence of Jesus in God's holy temple 
all silent before him. No place for pride and self-assertion or self-importance and self-esteem. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. If we're not making disciples, the first step is for him to lift us back into that simplicity of the presence of a holy God, to be overwhelmed there, to stay silent, to let him deconstruct us and bring us back to those primal passions and the simplicities of just having Jesus. And we don't really want or care about anything else. Second part of that verse. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes so that it may bear more fruit. And that word prune is kathairo. It's the same word for washing when Jesus washed the disciples' feet. So if we are making disciples, if I would paraphrase, if we're not making disciples, Jesus wants to lift us up into his presence. If we are making disciples, he wants to wash us. He wants to prune us. He wants to purify and get things out of us that shouldn't be in there. Story is told from Bangladesh by Phil Parshall about Cal Olson. Anybody know that name, Cal Olson? You guys know that name, Cal Olson? Cal Olson was an AGW missionary from Minnesota, an old farm boy from Swedish stock. Very simple and very prayerful. Very non-impressive. A little short guy, not very good with people, but he had one outstanding characteristic. He knew how to pray. So he became friends out of his simple way with the Prime Minister of Bangladesh, a Muslim nation. That Prime Minister had a big palatial home, and in the course of politics, his government was displaced, and so a new Prime Minister was coming in. And so the Prime Minister, the exiting Prime Minister, said to Cal, you know, for the new government's sake, I probably need to leave the country and let them take the public eye. And so I have this big palatial house. I want someone to use it. Cal, can you rent my house? Can you use my house while I'm out of the country? I'll keep an office. I'll keep a quarter. So when I come, you know, we'll share it. You can have it. For, and he knew Cal was an Assemblies of God missionary. This is a Muslim prime minister, right? But you can use the house for whatever ministry you want, and I'll have a portion of the house for my staff and I when I come and go from Bangladesh. Well, Cal said, I can't use it, but I have a friend who can. And his friend was Phil Parshall. Do you know that name? Some of the early writing on reaching Muslims was done by this man named Phil Parshall, who was with Sudan Interior Mission. So he went to Phil, who had a correspondence course for Muslims, and he said to Phil, Phil, you want to rent? half of the, president, uh, the prime minister's house for your correspondence course? And Phil was like, sure. And so uh, Phil is a much more commanding presence, hard-charging, in opposition to Cal, who's simple, quiet, reserved, but very prayerful. Uh, Phil Parshall, visionary, really in the 70s, was the first guy that got contextualizing the gospel to Muslims on the map before it became cool. And so he has this big course and the first movement, actually we're talking about movements, the first movement that we can trace all this back to is Phil Parshall in Bangladesh. Anyway, so he moves his correspondence course into the Prime Minister's house. And they're interacting, you know, the Prime Minister, former Prime Minister has come and going through the next successive years. After some years, the ex-Prime Minister calls Phil Parshall into his office and he says, Phil, sit down, I have a question for you. So Phil sits down, and the ex-prime minister says to him, Phil, are you a man of God like Cal Olson? And Phil Parshall is a little confused, a little startled, and he kind of hems and haws and tries to answer, you know, and da-da-da. 
Prime Minister says, no, that's not what I'm saying. Are you a man of God, like Cal Olson? So now Parshall's really confused. He doesn't know where this conversation is going. He doesn't know if he's overstepped his bounds or he hasn't. He just doesn't know. So he kind of stutters through an answer. And the Prime Minister interrupts him again. He says, no, 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 Phil. All I want to know is, are you a man of God like Cal Olson? Because every time I'm with Cal Olson, he talks about Jesus and he prays for me. You've never told me about Jesus and you have never prayed for me. Phil, are you a man of God like Cal Olson? And all Phil Parshall could do was put his head down and walk out of the office. It's interesting to me that Phil Parshall was making so many disciples and really was the first movement of disciples making disciples. And the Lord still had a lot of pruning work to do on him. If we, as a church, pursue the things that God is putting on your heart, I think two things will happen. The first thing is a lot of people will be pruned out of your community. I think there's going to be people who don't make the journey with you. I think this is kind of standard when there's a radical decision by a community to follow Jesus. The first thing is you lose people. Are you ready for that? Are you ready to make changes that are going to cost you? Some good people are going to leave. doesn't mean they're evil or wicked or whatever, but they're, number one, they're just not going to agree, perhaps, with what the Lord has led you towards. Or number two, maybe it's going to be difficult for them at one level or another. Or maybe number three, it's just not the Lord's will for them and they need to do something else that is very fruitful in a different sphere, in a different way. And that's good too, right? It's not just bad reasons for people leaving. Sometimes there'll be good reasons, but there'll first of all come some pruning from people around you that are precious to you, that you would love if they had journeyed with you, but it's just not what the Lord has for them or it's not what they're willing to agree to. And the second thing that's going to happen is the Lord's going to prune the heck out of you. And He's going to go down deep and He's going to hurt you and He's going to cut things out of your life that maybe you don't even see are in there right now. Positive side of that is the discipline of the Lord so tender. I am coming through now about a year and a half of almost two years of discipline at the Lord's hand, not moral or anything, but just a revelation of my own heart of things that I didn't see in my own leadership and in my own decision making, in my own character. It's been really hard. It's been very, very embarrassing because some of the mistakes I made were public and hurt people. And uh, you guys know what the Enneagram is? You know the Enneagram? So I'm a three on the Enneagram. I'm an achiever. I want to get things done. I want to be able to do them well. I and you know, then the pride side, you want to be recognized. Oh, he's a good missionary or he's a good leader. So then when it's put out in public for everyone to see, he's not such a good missionary or not such a good leader. You know, that strikes at the core of my identity. And, and even my confidence inside my own heart. And so some of that's happened to me the last couple of years. It's been, oh, so shameful and embarrassing and humiliating and all the things that are good for us. But what I found <laughs> in that process is Jesus is so tender when he disciplines us. So beautifully tender. I, I have experienced the tenderness of the Lord 
in incredible ways through my discipline journey. Well, that's what's going to happen to you, Cathairo, uh, is the washing of suffering. Some of that's self-inflicted because of the decisions we make and the consequences we must bear. Some of that is because of the decisions of other people. Some of that's just the consequences of change. That when you make a change that's unsettling, that asks different things of people, you're going to lose some people, you're going to take some hurt, and the Lord is going to prune you. But the beautiful thing is he's going to do that very tenderly. I'm so thankful for that. Therefore, if that's how Jesus changes and prunes us, please be tender when you do that for others as well. Please give out that same tenderness that you have received in the process of change and discipline and pruning. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. Abide, of course, is menno. It's where we get our word mansion or house. The indicative tense is where we spend a lot of time. So if I would read that with all of these translations... Spend a lot of time in Jesus, and Jesus spends a lot of time in you. As the pastor, missionary, disciple-maker cannot make disciples by him or herself unless he or she spends time in Jesus, so neither can you unless you spend a lot of time in Jesus. Verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him He bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. And that's the double negative if you know the passage. Jesus is essentially saying you can't do nothing unless you spend a lot of time with me. Then verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. And that verb to be thrown or cast is ballo, which is essentially is this. You know, we, we read that and again can be very disturbed if we don't understand context. So if I'm not spending a lot of time with Jesus, am I thrown away? That's kind of how it reads. But that word thrown away, this is, is the sense of it. It's to be released. It's to be let go. And essentially what Jesus is saying is if we don't abide in him, if we don't spend a lot of time with him, the wonderful implication and the the sober implication of free will as a moral agent is God doesn't force that upon us. That's our choice to linger with Him and spend time with Him. If we don't do that, He releases us to our own will. Now, within that, we have this beautiful other trajectory that if we choose to spend a lot of time with Jesus then we are continually updrafted into his presence, receive of his power and the sweetness and all of that. But when you see a dried branch on the vine, it's because it detached itself, right? And there's nothing else that will happen that it withers and then the vine dresser walks through. You can't do anything with that withered branch. You can't make wood out of it, whatever. You just gather it up and use it as fuel for the fire. So there's an impetus there on us as well. The Lord will meet us in glorious ways, 
but we have to make the choices to spend extravagant time. And if you don't, that's the warning for you, if you don't spend a lot of time with Jesus, you will wither. You won't survive this transition or this journey or any Christian life and process. You will just triumph. Let's not be that branch, right? So, same question on the first branch. I want to apply it to the second and the third. So if the first question was, if you're not making disciples, if for some reason you are down in the trench and in the shade, you're tired, you're hurt by others in the ministry, you're disappointed with the Lord, or you're just in a system that has run its course and is no longer effective in making disciples in our day and age, and things need to be changed, well, the promise is to be lifted up into the presence of a holy God and to sit in His temple and to stay silent before the Lord and to let Him do His deep, deep work in you. And the second branch, the question on that one is, if you are going to make these changes and you are going to start to see the disciples, just to remember, some people won't journey with you and some things inside you have got to go and that the Lord will tenderly discipline you and to be ready for that and not fight it when it happens. And to bless people when they go. And to bless the Lord when He starts hacking things out of you. And then in the tender way that He does that, pass on that tenderness to those who are walking with you. And maybe that's what you need to get your heart ready for, is that pruning that is coming. And then the third one is more the cautionary tale. That along the way, if you don't keep spending a lot of time in Jesus, the rigors of transition and the rigors of change and the rigors of transformation are very demanding. So if you are not extra careful to be abiding in Jesus, they will dry you up. You will detach yourself from the vine and the Lord won't be able to use you in His ongoing purposes. It's cautionary in that sense. I don't know where you are, and sometimes I think if I look at my own life, I'm at all three of those places, different aspects, because we're complex beings, you know, and so I can see different places. There's places in my life right now that are fruitful, and I can see the Lord's blessing. There are places in my life right now that I'm in discipline, and I can feel the Lord's correction. There's places in my life right now that I can sense His warning, that I need to just be careful on some boundaries and staying away from cliffs and staying right on the solid rock. You know, I, I can see myself in a variety of places. But here's what I'd like us to do with that text open in front of you, just to read over it again yourself from the last verse of chapter 14 down through verse 6 of chapter 15. And to just, as you read it, to ask the Lord again to reveal by His Holy Spirit where are you as far as those three different branches? Where do you need to be? And what is the Holy Spirit saying to you just in this moment? So I'd like us to take the next 10 minutes, read over that passage, maybe even several times, and then just reflect before the Lord and ask Him the question, Lord, let me know my own heart. Let me see with your eyes. Give me a revelation of where I need to be if there's areas that are off track. Can we do that? Let's take the next 10 minutes and do that.